Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 7. If you're just now visiting us, uh, we've done other podcasts on the book of Revelation, so we would encourage you to go and and listen to those that precede 7. And our goal for this uh, series of podcasts is to give you, the listener, just a little bit more depth than you're going to get in Sunday school. You're not going to cover it all in one Sunday, are you? No, and it's like Nephi said about his people in Isaiah. Isaiah was difficult for his people to understand because they knew not the manner of prophesying among the Jews. This is very symbolic literature. It's deep in imagery, and we grew up on Nephi's plainness. And so we love faith is, and baptism is, and the gospel is, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, the devil's a seven-headed dragon. Yeah. So I think in the, in this one, we're going to go back and maybe talk a little bit about six. Yeah. Seven's a beautiful chapter. But we actually opened up the sixth seal in Revelation chapter six. Now, I remind you that each of these seals represents a thousand-year period, and the seventh seal primarily is the millennium. Now, that doesn't mean that the second you open up the seventh seal, the millennium begins. There's a time period involved. But the sixth seal is the time that comes before the millennium. So we are in the sixth seal. If we really want to push and define, I think the seventh seal begins with the great sign, and there's silence in heaven, and none of that's happened. So I would just say we are in the sixth seal. So as we we spend a little bit of time in the sixth seal here, let's talk about, well, what is the Lord doing in our day? So let's go back to chapter six when the sixth seal gets opened in verse 12. The last five or six verses of chapter six talks about a shaking a shaking of the earth, and then it mentions the untimely fig. I have an apple tree in my front yard, and every year it produces more apples than we could possibly consume, and there's more apples left on the tree. Most of the apples fall to the ground, and we pick them up and throw them away or leave them for the deer or whatever, but there's always a dozen or so apples that stay on the tree and wither and rot. And come spring... They're ugly, they're unsightly, they're kind of a burden. So I go out there and I shake the limbs as best I can to have all these withered apples fall so that the new apples can start to grow. And and that's kind of the image here in Revelation chapter 6, that the Lord is shaking the earth. Or maybe it's not even the Lord shaking it, but the earth is shaking. And everything that is not rooted and grounded and established is going to fall out. Mike talked a little bit last podcast about governments and traditions. Communism shook out of the tree. I mean, we all thought that was going to be such a major player in the latter days, and it was for a while, but then it just didn't stand the shaking. And the earth is shaking, and all things are falling. And so the key here is hold on to what's enduring. Hold on to what is eternal and established and proven and it will endure the shaking. But we live in a period of time where philosophies are shaking and governments are shaking and people are shaking, and and we're just kind of rattling the tree to see the untimely fig fall off and what, what endures. 
All right, that's kind of a summary, but now let's turn to chapter seven, because there's a second thing going on in the sixth seal, is we are trying to prevent the destruction. A lot of people are shaken by Jesus of the second coming. They don't see Jesus in the destruction of the second coming. Well, this earth has to change. The earth has to be cleansed. For the Lord's purposes, we need a terrestrial earth, and right now we're living on a telestial earth, and the wickedness of this telestial planet has to end. And yet, Bryce, can you see how this would be hard? Yeah. I have no problem with an ancient reader who were just getting trounced by these huge empires, wanting, crying out to God, save us, redeem us, fix this inequality, and yet we're insulated by so much in this world that we live in where we have instant 911 calls. You can get police usually to arrive pretty soon, and they can fix if there's a problem, somebody's coming in your house, somebody's robbing your store. But if you think about it anciently, people looked at God as like a mighty redeemer that would fix their problems. So how do you reconcile the Jesus of the New Testament with the Jesus of Revelation, of section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, or Ezekiel 38? How would you address that? Well, we're going to do a lot of that here because you've got to see Jesus of the prevention. You've got to see all that he does to prevent destruction, to warn, and to every society. If you go back through the scriptures and you look at every destroyed society, what does the Lord do? He warns them over and over and over again. Let's take Egypt, for example. Does he kill the firstborn of the Egyptian children? Yes, he does. But what does he do beforehand? He sent warning after warning after warning. And now, notice there's an interesting order in the plagues of Egypt. After the water turns to blood, does anyone remember what the first plague was? Eventually, we're going to get to death. But what was the first plague? Frogs. A plague of frogs. Now, frogs don't kill people. They don't bite you. They don't carry huge diseases that cause annihilation of large people. They're just annoying they're kind of creepy. You know, the funny thing is, you know, in a park, your kids discover a frog, and initially everyone's like grossed out by it. But then by the time you're leaving, the kids are playing with the frog. You know, he's not sending a death plague. He's not sending a destruction plague. He's sending an annoying plague. That's the God that we worship. There's Jesus of the second coming. And when the frogs don't work, he sends lice. He's not hurting anyone. He's annoying them. He's trying, trying to get their to, attention. He's trying to get their attention to say, this won't end well unless you change. But I'm going to do everything in my power to help you change. So he goes from frogs to lice to flies. None of them are life-threatening. But then when they don't listen, when the Egyptians refuse to change, now he starts to afflict them without killing them. He starts taking out the cattle and then fire, and hailstorms, and destruction, and then the locusts come and eat up whatever the fire didn't destroy. Now you're hungry. And then boils. But notice what he's not doing. He's not killing them. This is a God that is very slow to destroy, but change he needs. This earth for his purposes, for the salvation of billions of people. For the work that we're going to do during the millennium, this earth has to change. It cannot remain a telestial earth. And so he's going to warn and warn and warn. And then finally, when the boils don't work and the cattle and the locusts don't work, before he hits death, you remember what he does? What You remember what the ninth plague is? Yeah. 
he sits them in darkness and has them think about it. Now, what kind of God is that? That's a God that is reluctant to destroy. But destroy he has to do if you're going to prevent his purposes from moving forward, which leads us to Revelation chapter 7. Part of the warning is to mark the righteous. Make sure you do not harm the righteous. This kind of reminds me of the blood on the doorposts. And so we're going to see that as a pattern. Right? One of my favorite verses of Scripture is in 3 Nephi 23, where Jesus is talking about the chapter of Isaiah he just quoted. And he says a remarkable thing. This is 3 Nephi chapter 23, verse 3. He says, regarding the writings of Isaiah, all things that Isaiah wrote have been and shall be. Now, that's an interesting phrase meaning God is a God of patterns. And if you want to know what shall be, you look at what has been. The second coming is is a pattern. The first coming of Christ in America is a pattern of the second coming. The destruction of Ammoniah in Alma is a pattern of the second coming. Egypt is a pattern. Things that shall be have been. And so one of the best things you can do in Scripture is to go back and say, okay, if I have a hard time seeing Jesus in the second coming, well, did you see Jesus in Third Nephi? Did you see Jesus in Ammoniah when the women and children were screaming out because they were being burned in the fire and the Lamanites came and cleansed the city? Did you see Jesus there? So being saved by a mark, now that's a pattern we've seen many times in the Scriptures, right? We saw it in Egypt. So what happened in Egypt, Mike? What saved them from the destroying angel? Yeah, it was the blood of the lamb. So in the Exodus narrative, even people that were not of the house of Israel could come to the lamb. They could come to this. In in Exodus, Passover is a family affair where you eat the lamb in families, in the home, in the blood of the lamb on the door. That was the mark. That was the sign. So you see the symbolism. Everyone that took the atonement and laid it on their family, their home, was spared by the destroying angel. And it wasn't just covenant Israel, anyone. Everyone was invited. And anyone who took the blood of the lamb and put it on their home, their house, their family, the destruction passed over them. So that's a marvelous symbol is we were saved by a mark. If you put the mark on you of atonement, then death and destruction passed you by. How do you not take the blood of the lamb that preserves the Israelites? How do you not contextualize that and say, hey, it's Jesus? I mean, it's a softball. You have to swing at that one. And so it's all over the place, especially in John. Right. The blood of the lamb. Well, then we see it again in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is a prophet of the the Babylonian captivity. So he's there right as Israel is falling. And Ezekiel is an eyewitness to the wickedness. So if you want to go to chapter 8, Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel is taken on a tour of the city and he sees the wickedness. He sees how defiled Israel has become. And it's, he's taken to the temple and he's just aghast with the, the evilness, the wickedness that's happened. So now we turn to Ezekiel chapter 9, and he has a vision, and there are six slaughtering angels. Each angel has a slaughter weapon in their hands, and these are the ones that have charge. Verse 1, cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, every man with his destroying weapon. 
Verse 6, six men came from the high, the way of the higher gate, and each one had a slaughter weapon in their hands. And then at the end of verse 2, as a man with a writer's ink corn. So he's got a little ink, and he's going to mark the foreheads. And then the Lord sends him in first. This is the God of prevention. The Lord sends him in first and says in verse 4, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the forehead of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. In other words, go mark the righteous. Go put a mark on the righteous and put it on their forehead, which is ironic because what should be on their foreheads, Mike? What should every Israelite have on their forehead? Well, they had different names for it, but you have the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They should always have written in their foreheads or written in their minds that prayer in Deuteronomy 6 that God is theirs, that they are God's and he is theirs. And it should be on their forehead. If it's not literal, it should be symbolically. It should be. They should have taken the blood of the lamb and placed it on their household. And so this writer takes his inkhorn and he goes throughout the city and he marks the righteous. And then he sends in the slaughter. Now, this sounds cruel, but these are everyone who will not put the mark on their forehead. These are all the ones that refuse the blood of the lamb, so to speak. I will not put the blood of Jesus on my house. And so he says to the slaughtering angels, verse 5, Go ye in after him, and let not your eyes spare. Slay utterly, both old and young, maid and little child. Now, I don't know why a little child wouldn't have the mark on their forehead. But the idea is those who refuse to put the mark, those who will not let righteousness be put on their forehead are going to be slaughtered. The Lord has to cleanse the city. This is a really ancient way of looking at cleansing and making, the word is haram, to make things uh, dedicated to God. And this is really hard. The book of Joshua does this a lot. In Deuteronomy the Lord tells Moses and the Israelites, you're going to make everything haram. You're going to make it dedicated to God. And so the land of Israel is recreated as sacred space by wiping out the identity of the Canaanites. And there's all kinds of ways to read the book of Joshua. First and second century Christian thinkers didn't like the literalness of it. That, that didn't sound like Jesus to them. And so it became allegorical. The book of Joshua was a symbol for sin. We got to get it out of our life. Bryce, this is tough stuff. I will throw a couple other ways to look at this. At least for me, it's helped me because it's a struggle. So it comes out of Job. I'm going to read Job a little different than we read in church, and I hope this is okay, but it ties into what Bryce is talking about. Job is the story of this guy, and hes we always say the patience of Job, but if you read Job, he's not very patient with the Lord. He's pretty ticked at the Lord, actually. And his friends say to him, Job, you're having these problems because... Uh, you've been bad. And the readers of Job are in on the story that Job is actually not a bad guy. Everything he's doing is uh, right. In fact, it calls him perfect. And so Job's doing everything good and he's struggling and his friends are like, no, you've messed up. And then Job says this, Job 19, verse 25, he says, for I know that my redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body yet in my flesh, shall I see God? That's Job 19, 25 and 26. And we read it like, hey, Job's having a hard time. He knows that Jesus lives and he's going to see Jesus in the resurrection. And in the actual text, the word for redeemer is goel. And goel is an avenger. A goel 
is a vindicator. To them, God was a mighty warrior. So if my house has been burned down and my family has been killed, the Goel is going to make it straight. He's going to get revenge. He's going to get my family back if they've been kidnapped. Abraham plays this role, right? At the slaughter of the kings in Genesis, he goes and he rescues everybody from the city and he brings them back to the king of Sodom. And he's a Goel. He's a redeemer. A redeemer also is if I'm a widow, my husband's died and I don't have anyone to take care of me. A Goel is a near kinsman who will take me into his household. And so Boaz plays that position for Ruth. And so from an Old Testament perspective, if you and I lived in the ancient world and we are just getting wrecked by these empires, to them, God was a mighty warrior. He was a Goel. He fixed things that were wrong and it's messy, like Bryce is talking about. Whether it's Ezekiel or it's Joshua, it's messy. But he's always warning the wicked before he destroys them. And that's what we need to remember. There's a beautiful phrase in the Book of Mormon, speaking of the Jews, and the Lord says, never hath any of them been destroyed, save it were foretold them by the prophets of the Lord. What verse is that? That's 2 Nephi 25, 9. That's a good verse. And one generation hath been destroyed among the Jews because of iniquity. Even so, they have been destroyed from generation to generation according to their iniquities. And never hath any of them been destroyed, save it were foretold them by the prophets of the Lord. So yes, Jesus is going to cleanse the earth, and yes, there will be death and destruction, but there has been many, many efforts, and we're going to see so many efforts to try and preserve them and save them and go out. So the next few chapters are all about preserving Jesus, the Jesus that's going to try and save them from destruction, but destruction is coming. Vengeance is coming, and wrath is coming, but if you'll get the mark on your forehead. So with all that introduction, let's go to Revelation chapter 7, and again, like Ezekiel 9, there's angels who are sent forth to destroy the earth. So in verse 1, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor any tree. Now, they're going to destroy the earth. These are the angels that are going to cleanse the earth and rid it of all the celestial elements. The symbol four is, four represents the earth, Mike. Right? Yeah, the earth east, and its west, four quarters, yeah. Yeah, east, west, north, south, four quarters of the earth. So four is the number of the earth and four angels who have stewardship over the earth. But then in verse two, an angel ascends from the east having the seal of the living God. And his job is to say to the angels in verse 3, don't hurt the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Give us time to mark the righteous, to save as many people as we possibly can. The sixth seal, this is our day, the Church of Jesus Christ of latter-day saints. We're the ones that come before to save as many people as we possibly can, to put the mark in the forehead, to tell everyone we can and give them a chance to mark them as righteous so that the destruction doesn't happen. So give us time to mark the righteous in their forehead. Now, if you want to just kind of say, see that mark again, in Egypt, the mark was the blood of the lamb. If you'll jump to Revelation chapter 14, there's some saved people that come. And they have a mark on their forehead. And notice verse 1, Revelation 14, 1. What's the mark 
that these 144,000 have on their foreheads. He's got their name, his the name, name of the Father. That reminds me of the temple too. The high priest would have on his forehead in gold, holiness to the Lord. And I think, once again, this is temple. John saying, we need to be these priests and priestesses. We need to have his name on our forehead. Which is interesting because in section 109, which is the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, listen to what the Lord says. Verse 24, we ask thee, Holy Father, to establish the people that shall worship and honorably hold us name and standing in this thy house to all generations and for eternity, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper, and that he who diggeth a pitch for them shall fall into it the same himself, that no combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up. This is Revelation 7. No combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. So it's the righteous image. It's the idea of getting the Father's name on you. So may I suggest the work of the Latter-day Saints, the work of the sixth seal is to warn everyone we possibly can and get Jesus in their forehead. Get God on their countenance. Like Alma says to the people in the Book of Mormon, have you received his image in your countenance? That's the mark. That's what we're trying to do in our dispensation. We're trying to get people to put Jesus on them. Now, there's going to be a counter image in chapter 13, which we'll talk about when we get there. But for now, the saving grace, the saving principle, if you want to avoid the destruction that's coming, put the blood of the Lamb on you. Let his attitude, his actions, his love for others be reflected in your own life. Put the mark of the Father on your forehead. And that's what missionaries are doing. Going back to Revelation chapter 7, you begin to see this massive missionary effort, and we go out and we start to gather all the tribes of Israel. And pretty soon we've gathered thousands of them, 144,000 from all the different tribes. Now that number's symbolic, not literal, but we've gathered all the house of Israel. Verse 9, look at what we're going to do. Here's the work of the sixth seal. So he sees 12,000 from each tribe. And then in verse 9, after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. This work is going to be successful, and we're going to do everything in our power to save as many people as we possibly can from the upcoming destruction. But they need to know about Christ. They need to know who he is so that they can put his life on their life and that he can be reflected in their countenance. And that's how we seal them in the forehead is we put the name of the Father on them. We get them to the temple. We get them to the sacrament table. We get them to take covenants. At the sacrament table, they show that they are willing to take upon them the name of Christ. In the temple, that name gets put upon them and they are Christ's. And then when the destruction comes, which it has to come to cleanse the earth, notice in chapter 9, I'm in Revelation chapter 9, look at verse 4. When the destroying forces come forward, they are commanded to hurt everyone except those who have the mark. It's Exodus again. Don't you touch anyone 
who has the mark of God. There's the Jesus of the second coming. The one who has warned and warned and warned and given them every opportunity and everyone that's righteous has a mark in their forehead that will spare them from the destruction. And those that aren't being spared were told time and time again and warned in every voice he could utter to repent because the earth cannot remain a telestial earth. May we reflect Christ and wear him proudly in our foreheads and then go out and save as many people as you possibly can. We have a whole multitude of people to save. I like where Joseph says, who are these people? In section 77, verse 11, and the Lord says, we're to understand that those who are sealed are high priests, ordained into the holy order of God to administer the everlasting gospel, For they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people by the angels to whom is given power over the nations of the earth to bring as many as will come. Now, one of the misleading things in that quotation, Mike, is the word high, the words high priests. We often think, oh, high priests are the old guys in my ward that meet. And, you know, these are the former bishops. That's not what they read anciently, Mike. So I know you're dying to talk (laughs) about what was a high priest. So if these saved people are high priests, what's the imagery here? I I have to say this. So I'm going to go there and I'm going to say some things that maybe you haven't heard before, but I don't look at this, like Bryce says, as a bunch of old guys sitting around. First of all, notice what it says, to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. So the church of the firstborn, from my reading of scripture, is this heavenly church. We have the church on earth, but we have the church in heaven. And the church of the firstborn are those that are cleansed, those that are exalted, those that are celestial. And brothers and sisters, there is no church of the firstborn without mom. There is no heaven without mom. Mom makes heaven. She is the symbol. The idea in Judaism of a house is feminine. The mother, heavenly mother, another way to talk about her is, well, a house or a place where we can be safe. And so I'm going to put this in the show notes, but here it is. Sydney White Crawford wrote an article that's amazing. She's not Latter-day Saint, but she wrote an article called Mothers, Sisters, and Elders, Titles for Women in the Second Temple Jewish and Early Christian Communities. She published this in January of 2003, and she goes to the ancient texts in early Christianity. And the word for elder, presbytoi, often we think of old guys, but there were women who were presbytoi. Now, what do we do with this? Let me just say that Joseph starts to unpack this in Nauvoo, and he gets the sisters together in the uh, Nauvoo store, and he tells them, I'm going to give you the keys of the priesthood. They're going to be given to you in the temple. And so if you've been to the temple, sisters function and administer as high priestesses. There is no church of the firstborn without mom. And even women. the high priest anciently was the one who went into the Holy of Holies. If an ancient Israelite in Moses' day were to come speak to women in the church today and a woman were to say, I've been inside the highest, the holiest room in the temple, he would freak out. What do you mean you've been in? There was only one person who went into the holiest room of the temple, and that was the high priest. So symbolic, the fact that these are high priests— don't necessarily mean they are men who hold the office of high priest as much as these are people who have been into the holiest place in the temple. And that in our day includes women and men of all offices of the priesthood. They are saved. They are temple-oriented. They've been into the holy place. And so I just don't think we should read these verses as, oh, these are people who hold the office of high priest. We are gathering from every tribe and bringing them into the holiest room in the temple 
and that's the name of the father on your forehead. So every tribe is going to make it. So don't see this as a 144,000 men associated with the office of high priest as much as it's saved individuals who have come into the presence of the father in his holy temple. So now, Bryce, I'm going to push back on one thing you said, but you're right according to the Bible as it's read. So one of the things Bryce said is it would be very strange to get in a time machine and say, hey, I've been into the holy place of the temple. And I think that's what the editors of the Old Testament want us to believe. And it's a lot to unpack, and I'm still learning so much about this. But first temple Israelite religion was different than what we get in the Bible. And so what Bryce is talking about is the edited version of the Bible where it says only one guy goes in there and it's the high priest. But yet we have in the liturgical poems of the Psalms, these were used in the temple and they were used for temple worship. Now, not all of them, but like Psalm 24 certainly is. Psalm 68 is another. And so if you're listening at home, you might want to just hit pause right now and get your scriptures. Psalm 68 was used in the temple, and you got to do careful reading. And we're going to unpack the whole thing with Bashan in another podcast, but I'm going to start in verse 22. The Lord said, verse 22 of Psalm 68, I will bring again from Bashan, I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea. Remember, the sea is chaos. That thy foot may be dipped in the blood of thine enemies. There's that war imagery. Verse 24, they have seen thy goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. So where are we? We're in the temple. The singers went before. The players on instruments followed after. Among them were the damsels playing with timbrels. Bless ye God in the congregations, even the Lord from the fountain of Israel. I don't know if you caught that, but verse 25, in a temple text, in the sanctuary, there's singing going on. That's part of the first temple. They're singing it to play and there's women participants. My take on this is that there were women high priestesses in the first temple that played a role in first temple Israelite religion. It's been edited out. Today, Joseph puts this back, and it's pretty awesome. So kind of the simple point of all of this is in the sixth seal, the work of the sixth seal is to gather all the righteous that we possibly can, gather them into the temple where they take upon themselves the name of God. And that symbolically puts a mark on their forehead that says when the destruction comes, these are not the ones to be destroyed. Now, again, that doesn't mean no righteous person is ever going to suffer harm. That's not what we're saying. But in general, we can say confidently the righteous need not fear. Nephi, who saw the end of the world, says that many times. I can't tell you what happens, but I can say the righteous need not fear. So gather to the temple. Make the covenants with the Lord, put his name upon you, and then tell everyone you possibly can, getting people to know Jesus, make covenants with him, and become his people. So with that, we thank you for listening. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. And we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.